Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. We're doing 8 and 9 again tonight. Sound the alarm, part 2. Trumpets are blowing, and that's what they do. They're sounding the alarm. So I'm going to read to you the um, context, the background of what's going on in the Roman Empire while John is writing this vision. It's in the bulletin. It goes like this. They call him the King of Kings and Son of God. Worshippers hail him their Lord and Savior. Messengers herald the good news of his ascension. His reign promises global peace and prosperity. And in his decree reside the power of life and death. His kingdom is said to be eternal. His name is Caesar Domitian. But the church calls him Christ Jesus. Two kings, two kingdoms, Caesar will not allow it. So Revelation examines this tension with visions altering between monsters and men, worship and war, prophets and prostitutes. But when the dust settles, only one remains the true king of kings. So we enter into a world in which John, the the last living apostle, the last living of the 12 followers of Jesus, is now governing many churches. And this is a world in which the emperor of the world, of the Roman Empire, has claimed for himself many titles of deity. And ironically, they happen to be the ones that the church gives to Jesus, now, this wasn't accidental. The church was usually, they were smart in advancing the message of the true good news of the true king of the true kingdom by stripping Caesar of his titles and giving them to Jesus. It wasn't copying Caesar. It was simply using the language of the day to contrast for people. You think this guy's the son of God? Let us tell you about Jesus. You think this guy's the king of kings? Let us tell you about Jesus. And so this is the world in which Revelation is penned, in which John receives four lengthy visions containing many multiple visions uh, while he's exiled, persecuted for the gospel on the island of Patmos. And so we have the record then. He writes them down and puts it into a letter for the churches he governs, the seven that are in modern-day Turkey on the western edge of it. And that's what we've been going through. That's this book we call Revelation. Crazy book indeed. So, let's recap where we're at. The scroll. Daniel chapter 7. You can jot it down or turn to it, but this is an enormous chapter in which Revelation opens up uh, the vision of, of, the, of the worship in heaven. Revelation chapters 4 and 5, there's this worship in heaven, and there's the one who's seated on the throne, and then Jesus being pictured as the lamb who's been slaughtered and who's now victorious because of his sacrifice comes to the one who sits on the throne. And this is all very reminiscent of Daniel 7. You could read more of it on your own time, but what we need to look at right now is 7.14. It says, now this is where the one called the Son of Man, Jesus called himself the Son of Man, so this is a prophecy of Jesus. He comes to the one who sits on the throne, and this is what happens in 7.14. And to him, Jesus, was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, 
nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Flip left to Psalm chapter 2. Then you guys can calm down a little bit. So just go one more time to Psalm 2 to your left. Psalms in the middle of the Bible. Very important psalm. This psalm was often quoted by uh, the authors of the New Testament. So it was an important one to the early church. Psalm chapter 2. You have here a scene where the nations are getting together and the rulers of the nations and they're complaining and grumbling against God and against his anointed one. And they want to break his bonds off of them. We want to get rid of God and his, quote, anointed one, which becomes, it's a symbol of Jesus, who is the anointed one. Literally translated, it's just Messiah, Christ. Um, So what happens is God sits in the heavens, verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs, The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, you guys want your own king, but as for me, I have set my king on Zion. That's the mountain of Jerusalem, my holy hill. Then the psalmist says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That line, often quoted in the New Testament to apply to Jesus. Jesus is this son that God is saying, I've begotten you. So what happens now is in verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Then the psalm concludes by saying, knowing who's the true king, worship him. Now, the key there is that Jesus, this son of God, is to ask of him of the nations and God will give it to him. So that's the psalm. Daniel 7, we saw him coming to God and receiving from him a kingdom of all tribes, tongues, and nations. And uh, he, he has dominion and it never ends. His kingdom has no end. Well, this picture of God giving rulership and nations and a kingdom to his son is now illustrated rather climatically for us in Revelation chapter 5, when the worship settles down for one brief moment. And in Revelation 5, we see, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And the question's asked, who can open this scroll? Nobody steps forward. John weeps uncontrollably. And then finally someone says, wait, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the vicious, victorious, royal lion has conquered. John then looks and doesn't see a lion, but sees a lamb as though he had been slaughtered. The paradox of Christianity, that victory and rulership and power come by giving our lives away for the world And then Jesus comes up to the one sitting on the throne and he hands him the scroll. 
In chapter 6, he begins to open the scroll, one seal at a time, and each seal brings something to the earth. The first four bring riders down onto the earth. We see wars, we see conquest, we see famine, we see disease and illness and death. The fifth seal, we see a great persecution of the saints. The sixth seal, we see all this poetic imagery of this great cataclysmic event on the earth. Then finally, the seventh seal is opened. And in chapter eight, we read that there was silence in heaven for half an hour. What is this scroll that has seven seals that Jesus receives from the father? Well, as we've been saying, it would seem that this scroll is the title deed of the earth. As ancient Roman documents, when a person was to pass away, they would put their will and testament into a scroll and they would seal it with up to seven, sometimes six witnesses. They put their signet wing ring into the wax and then you would therefore have to have witnesses in order to open that will so that the inheritor can receive it. It seems that John is using that imagery to say, this is the title deed the father is giving to the son. Why the title deed of the earth? Because that is the realm where the son is going to establish the kingdom and rule over every tribe and nation forever and ever. So what we literally have here is the great power of history and of the future and of the world. And Jesus, because of his victory through the cross, the lamb who was slain comes forward and receives from the father as the reward for his obedience to him, that which Satan tried to offer him in the temptations in the wilderness, but he declined. Fall down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Well, that would have been temporary, Instead, he goes to the cross. The father gives him the kingdom forever and ever. This is why all of heaven erupts, myriads upon myriads upon myriads. Worthy is the lamb to take the scroll. And they give him more attributes of praise than the one who sits on the throne got. You might remember that. You can go back and listen to that later. So what happens then when the seventh so the scroll is opened, right? This is, he's going to read it. You open the scroll and it's okay. The king has taken the kingdom. He's going to open the scroll. The royal pronouncement from the father himself is there. All the earth is, all of heaven is hushed in silence because the true king is about to step up and make his royal pronouncement. So there's a silence. And in order to get the attention of the inhabitants on the earth, the royal trumpets now begin to blare. With the opening of the seventh seal, you'll notice in verse two, John sees seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Trumpets were meant to either call to war or to warn people of something. And here's what they're being used for, to warn the inhabitants of the earth, the true king has received the title deed for the kingdom. Pay attention, he's about to speak. So seven chances to listen to the trumpet before he speaks. When the seventh and final trumpet blows, you can go to chapter 11, verse 15. So once the final announcement trumpet is blown, the king reads, Jesus reads from the scroll, the royal pronouncement. And it says, so 11, 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is the pronouncement to the world. He has a scroll. He's going to reign forever and ever. So for us and for the world today, it's to heed the trumpet before 
you are found in rebellion against the coming king. So, that's the scroll, that's the seals. All right, we're ready now to enter into our material. Before I get into these crazy trumpets and the things that happen, I had an interesting chat with someone um, after service last week, and it, it hit me that this needs to be said. So Revelation is our final book in the Bible, right? Very strategically placed. Not only is it written last of all, but it really has a place in the back for a reason. And that's because Revelation actually has nothing new to say. It has nothing new to say. 65 books before it are all of its material. What Revelation does is it simply gets a collage of everything that has already been said and puts it for us in a poetic picture, uh, inspirational imagery, vivid visions. It's painting it for us. You've heard it said, let me show you now. That's what Revelation's doing. 404 verses in this book, 404. And as many as 278, do the math, that's 70%. As much as 70% of the verses contain a reference or an allusion to the Old Testament. Again, it has nothing new to say. It's a collage of what has already been said. The reason for me saying this is to realize that Revelation is not teaching us. It's showing us. It's not, in other words, doctrine. Hey, here are the great doctrines and they're all upheld in Revelation. Mm -mm. All the doctrines have already been taught. Revelation is just saying, now that we know all those, what's it going to look like when it all comes together? So put in maybe a more of a literature aspect, Revelation is the great therefore of everything scripture has already said. So we need to realize that as we come to it, nothing in the book should surprise us. It might give us a different angle. Revelation may, and it literally, John does literally at one point go up to a mountain, but uh, it may take us up on a mountain and see things a little differently, but nothing is introduced. It's already covered. So um, that means that when we interpret Revelation, it's very important that we reach inward, inward to the Old Testament and to other references it makes, not outward to current events and world politics. The book is meant to be interpreted within. The, the curtain goes up in Genesis. We see the drama. The curtain comes down in Revelation. Everything you need to know is right within the up and down of the curtain. So with that said, um, I think it's time now I, I talk about how I'm trying to approach the book. And that's where um, some prefer to read Revelation literally. In other words, there's a saying that when you come to the book of Revelation, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And that is a pretty good rule of thumb However, it only helps if we all understand what the plain sense is to be the same thing. For example, a star falling out of heaven. What's the plain sense of that? 
if I'm in the 21st century and I know about meteorites and comets and things, I might say, well, if it's coming down and falling, it's probably a meteorite. But if I'm way over here and I'm a Jew who knows the Old Testament scriptures and I know Isaiah's prophecies and I've read Isaiah 14 that talks about the falling of the great morning star, to me, a star falling to heaven means the fall of a ruler. Very different here. One's a a poetic metaphor. The other is a scientific explanation, which is the plain sense. So that's where we have to be a little careful when we say we're going to read it literally. Um, I've been reading a lot of literal interpretations and they aren't, well, there's no one literal interpretation. So I want to say, so I too, I want to read this revelation literally, but I think I mean something different when I talk about literal, um, because what I do is I take the, I take revelation as a written work. John receives a vision and he writes it down. He has real ink, real paper, and he's putting words on the paper. He's using what we call grammar and syntax and language. And when you put all these things together, it's called literature. So I like to take revelation and understand it not simply literally, but literarily. Does that make sense? In other words, I take the literature seriously, that when an author is using this word, we have to, like with all writings, say, what does the author want us to know from that word? So um, Revelation, since, like we just said, it uses a lot of the Old Testament to give us these pictures, uh, we need to then use the Old Testament and go back to these images and ask, what did this image, what did this picture mean in the Old Testament? And so now what does it mean here in Revelation? Rather than just seeing the picture and saying, well, a bleeding lamb is literally a bleeding lamb, um, we need to say, wait, where else in the Bible do we see lambs? What did it mean there? What does it mean here? That's reading it from a literary standpoint. And that's what we're going to try to do as we continue to go through. So um, the Old Testament used what's called, uh, I call prophetic poetry. Um, you're a prophet and you're getting these visions and sometimes they're bigger than you can handle. So how do you explain something that we haven't seen or done yet? You reach for language you have around you but you don't try to explain it. To, you try to reach for language you have around you that's broad enough to not limit the vision that you're seeing. So the words you reach for are called metaphors because metaphors give you the idea, yet don't close and limit the vision. And so the prophets used a ton of poetry and we need to understand the images that they used then and what do they mean here in Revelation. All that to say. <laughs> do you guys like to get to the conclusion of this? Um, All that to say is that history is informing prophecy. So all this comes together like this. Um, We're going to see lots of images from the Old Testament. We have, we we will continue to, because God did stuff in the past with Israel because of what he's going to do in the future with the world. Example, in the past, God saved Israel because in the future, he's going to save the world, in which we're actually already participating in that. I'm not Jewish, yet God has saved me. In the past, God judged 
Israel, because in the future he's going to judge the world, both of them for disobedience. In the past, he dwelt with Israel because in the future he's going to dwell once again on this earth with humanity. So John is describing, possibly, he's describing the future with language from the past. That's why we reached the Old Testament. So what we did last week is we started this when we got to these trumpets. John reaching to the past to inform prophecy. History informing prophecy. So what happens then, what I'm saying is when we get to these seven trumpets, um, there is a school of interpretation and revelation that sees them as already fulfilled in the past. When did this happen? It happened with the fall of Jerusalem under the Roman invasion in AD 70. So 40 years after Jesus, the Romans finally come to Jerusalem. They'd been there the whole time, but the Jews finally started thinking they can take over the Romans. They rebel, they revolt, and the Romans have this long four-year siege. It is very brutal, and tons and tons and tons of Jews get crucified, and they get massacred, and the city is squashed. The temple's taken down stone by stone, and the Jews are scattered throughout the world. That's AD 70. And many scholars think, not most, but many, think that these seven seven trumpets recount that destruction. We dealt with that last week. So that's the history of things. But how does the history inform the prophecy that John is trying to give to us in this book? That's why we took the pain last week to do that. So let's um, recap last week, and then we'll move into how does that history inform the prophecy, okay? So, real quick, the seven trumpets last week. Um, Let's read through them, and then we will do that. So, verse 6. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Read historically, this is referencing when the Romans cut down all of the trees around Jerusalem to build their siege ramps and take over the city. Um, many, uh, Josephus historian, just to recap, you can listen to this if you want. Uh, he talked about how there used to be a lot of trees around Jerusalem, but now it looks like the wilderness it is today because the Romans devastated all of the vegetation in the siege. Second, eight, verse eight. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So this would say that um, the mountain is Jerusalem. It's being judged with fire, thrown into the sea, which are the Gentiles, because they were dispersed amongst all the nations. And the sea becoming blood and the ships being destroyed and the sea being destroyed is because the Romans chased many of the Jews up into the Sea of Galilee. And there, there was an awful massacre of tons of Jews. And Josephus describes blood everywhere in the water and on the shore. Third trumpet, verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the waters and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood, which means bitter. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. 
And again, in short, this is reversing what Moses did in the wilderness as he led the Israelites out of Egypt and they came to their first body of water and the thirsty Israelites throw their face into the water, drink it up, it's bitter, they get sick, they throw it out. Then Moses throws the tree into the water, it becomes sweet, they're able to drink it, and God says to them, if you obey my commands, none of the diseases that came upon Egypt will come upon you. Well, because of Jerusalem's disobedience, that promise is now reversed. You have been disobedient. The sweet waters are now bitter, and the sicknesses of Egypt are coming upon you. Seal uh, trumpet number four in verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be kept dark, or might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Old uh, Testament prophetic poetry, for example, Isaiah 13, talks a lot about um, the heavens being darkened as a symbol for the fall of kings and kingdoms. So they would say this is the fall of Jerusalem's rulers and the city. Then we get to the fifth trumpet. And we learned about the locusts. We'll read part of it. Chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from earth to heaven, uh, from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke, it's almost sounding like a Stephen King novel, From the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So these locusts come out, and locusts usually eat vegetation. These locusts don't eat vegetation. They eat humans. So they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Well, reading this in history, if this is the fall of Jerusalem, they would say right before the Romans broke the wall and came in and took the city, the Jews were invaded with what seemed to, um, by historical accounts, you read Josephus' accounts, it seemed that the people were possessed with a manic, a manic behavior as if demons possessed them. And the people were doing all kinds of gross things. Again, you can listen to last week's message if you want the details. But that would seem to be this demonic invasion of the people in Jerusalem. Then sixth trumpet, and this is the last one of our text, because the seventh one is delayed, and it comes later. Verse 13, The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And number the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. 
I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out from their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So, again, reading this as history, the fall of Jerusalem, this would be the final army that gets through the wall of Jerusalem. And many of the Romans might have come down from the Euphrates River and then came in through and broke through the city wall, and it was the end, and it was terrible. So, History informs prophecy. You have to reach for language you understand and know to say something that we don't understand or know. And John could very well be letting history inform prophecy. Remember, things God's done with Israel, he's doing with the nations. So history informs the future. History informs prophecy. You guys ready now to finally look at this in a more prophetic manner? But what do these trumpets mean for the future when Jesus does indeed finally open the seventh seal and is about to read the pronouncement of the kingdom? What are these seven trumpets going to look like? Well, I'll give you a couple notes before we talk specifically about them. Three literary notes. Reading this, these are the three important things that stick out as you read about the trumpets. First, that the first four trumpets stand out from the last three. You read the first four in chapter 8, Five and six are in chapter nine, and then the seventh one is later in chapter 11. The first four form a unit, like the seven seals had the four horsemen, then the other three. The seven trumpets have these four uh, things happening to the earth, and then the last three have things happening to humanity. So they're, they're a little bit compartmentalized. Second literary note. The description, excuse me, a lot of talking. The description of these judgments are based on the plagues that God launches against Egypt in the Exodus story. You'll notice uh, he's not, of course, trying to retell the exact same story, but all of these judgments mirror the plagues that happened in Egypt. And then third literary note, all the judgment in these plagues is limited, and you might have noticed this, it's limited to a third the point of a third is why just why a third? We don't know precisely why a third. But the fact that it is a fraction says that these judgments are limited. They're not full-blown doom and destruction. So in other words, God is warning people. The trumpets are warning, not destroying. Okay, so the first four trumpets, that unit, let's deal with. In general, we can look at these uh, as prophecies for um, these first four can be looked at as nuclear warfare. Many people write about nuclear warfare in these four trumpets. You have in the first one, a third of the earth and trees being burned up. How do you burn up a third of the earth? A couple nuclear bombs will do that easily. Uh, the second one, with the sea becoming blood and the, the mountain of fire coming down, uh, also could be a nuclear missile, a warhead coming in. Um, the third, uh, of course, um, uh, all the waters becoming poisoned, radioactive poisoning, right? And then the fourth one, everything being darkened, that, des- that describes what happens when uh, you have what's called a nuclear winter. Several nuclear bombs go off, you have so much dust and debris in the air that 
literally, you lose a ton of sunlight and stars and moon, so a third is darkened. Seems like it could fit that description. Other people try to read climate change into this. Now, I know it's a controversial topic, and not everyone buys into it. Obama did. Trump's already said that he's going to undo what Obama did. So, you know, not even our own country understands really what's going on. Um, But you could see, if you buy into climate change, you could see, well, wait a minute, look at this. The green grass and the trees are dying off. This is happening. Now, is it climate change? You know, who knows? Um, the, the sea is warming. It doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really literally just talk about blood, but the sea is having problems. It's polluted. It's warming. The glacier caps are melting. Um, you've got the, the, the fresh water being attacked. We have so much flooding lately. It's not even funny. And tsunamis as well. And um, the fourth trumpet, the darkening of the, the celestial things. I'm not sure what the climate change people would say there, but nonetheless, you have the earth is significantly reducing itself. Others prefer to read these four trumpets very, very literally. Um, so in other words, like these are supernatural judgments from God. So when it says in this first trumpet in verse seven, that you have hail and fire mixed with blood, and these are thrown to the earth and burned a third of things, um, literally then you have hail and fire coming down and blood. It's coming down on earth. And people are going to be completely freaked out, as they should be. Henry Morris is a very scientific commentator. He actually tries to describe a condition in which rain can come down as red. So you wouldn't see as literal blood, but that it would appear as blood. Um, so you go down the list and you see that. So the mountain with fire crashing into the sea and destroying a third of the sea would be a meteorite. What else looks like a mountain burning and can destroy a third of the ocean? Um, and you go on, and they would read it literally in that sense. For example, the fourth trumpet, a third of the moon and the stars and the sun. Well, the 24-hour day cycle would be reduced to a 16-hour day cycle, reading it in that literal, supernatural approach. Um, however, it's probably best if we read this through the lens of prophetic poetry, which would be taking it literarily which is kind of literary, literally. If you follow me? If you don't, I don't follow myself. So you're forgiven. Um, and here's, here's what I mean for an example. So look at trumpet two, and you have that great mountain, something like a great mountain burning with fire being thrown into the sea. If you are ambitious, either turn back to or jot down Jeremiah 51, and you will see this great mountain Jeremiah 51, verses 25 and 42. So in Jeremiah 51, 25, Jeremiah is prophesying against different nations. This time, Babylon comes up on the list. Oh, Babylon. They're the, right, the great persecutors of Israel. So they're going to get a good lick in here. So in Jeremiah 51, 25, he says, speaking for God. Behold, I am against you, Babylon. O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain, 
So here we have a picture of a mountain falling and on fire. The mountain is Babylon. Now go to that next verse, verse 42. Um, the sea has come up on Babylon. She is covered with its tumultuous waves. Okay, so you take those verses, and the prophecy against Babylon looks exactly like what Revelation is describing. A burning mountain falling and being cast into the sea or covered with the sea. So if we're reading this with prophetic poetry, then the mountain, which was the fall of Babylon in the Old Testament, would then in Revelation be the fall of Babylon. Now, this is where you adjust for context. Is Babylon the nation that needs to fall? There really isn't a Babylon today, but there could be in the future. Maybe this is talking about Rome, the fall of Rome, or Antichrist's future kingdom. The point is, read with prophetic poetry, the second trumpet is announcing the fall of that great kingdom in which the kingdom of God is going to come and remove. Another example, um, in the third trumpet, you see the star falling from heaven, blazing like a torch. A third of the springs were affected the third of the springs of water. Um, Isaiah compared the fall of Babylon's king to the fall of a star in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. And most of you might remember it as being, it says, uh, Oh, how you are fallen, O Lucifer. Well, Lucifer means morning star, so you are actually reading. Uh, sometimes Lucifer gets in the way because you're thinking, devil, oh, the fall of the devil. Um, what you're actually reading in Isaiah 14, verse 12, is this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And he goes on and describes the fall of Babylon, and, and the fall of the day star is the king. So if you have Babylon the kingdom, the king is the star. Well, here, Isaiah is saying the star falls to the earth. He's done. And here in Revelation, we see the star falling to the earth. And if I'm reading it with, po with prophetic poetry, I'm thinking of Isaiah talking about the fall of rulers. And so I'm reading Revelation with, we see with the trumpets, the future pronouncement of the fall of all the rulers of the earth. I don't know exactly how that hurts the waters, but again, reading with prophetic poetry, the waters goes back to Moses, as the other view had talked about. As Moses made the bitter waters sweet. But now the sweet water is being turned bitter because of human, humankind's rebellion against the true king. And things are happening. And then finally, example, like the fourth trumpet, the darkening of the sun and the moon. Uh, the prophets used in their prophetic poetry the darkening of the heavenly beings and bodies as the fall of kingdoms. Again, Isaiah 13, you can jot it down. The fall of Babylon will be like the moon being darkened, the sun being darkened. He even talks about the stars crashing to the earth, like figs being dropped from a fig tree. Um, Joel chapter 2 talks about the darkening of the, the celestial lights. It's many places in the prophets. I won't name them all to bore you. You can get those for me later. So, here we go. The History is informing the future. History informs prophecy. 
the way Jerusalem had fallen in the past, the way Babylon had fallen in the past, this is the way the kingdom of the world will fall when Jesus opens the seventh and final seal. So the anti-Christian world is falling. Okay, so we now come to the three woes. Um, Look at 8 verse 13. So after the first four trumpets go, we read this, 8.13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. The first four are warnings. These last three are possibly the first stages of war. And we don't need to think necessarily of, you know, a crazed God angry and throwing things at the world. A lot of this could very well be human-induced judgment. And God just says, yep, there goes history. I'll wait, and then I'll bring my kingdom. Um, But here is the shift, is that it's getting much more intense. And one commentator says this, This is a transition from divine warning to demonic woes. It previews that ultimate excommunication of unrepentant man to the punishment prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, put in simpler words, this is previewing hell for those that aren't going to repent. So they're getting a taste of it before they have to get a taste of it. So trumpet five, we say, we already read these locusts coming out of the pit. They come forward. What does this look like in the future? Well, if this was demonic possession, and if that's true, if it was in Jerusalem demonic possession, why can't that be in the future? I'm not going to, don't mishear me, I'm not going crazy, but uh, in a very, very mild sense, I look at all of the um, reactions to Trump winning the presidency in some of the cities, and I'm going, seriously, people, you are acting like some spirit is upon you. I mean, he hasn't done anything yet. <laughs> what, how has he been disqualified yet? Um, and, and don't read that too much. Um, but you just get like a little snippet. They're like, can't the world soon go absolutely berserk and manic in the future? That's very possible. Especially when you get a Satan-filled man leading the world which we would later see and are going to call the Antichrist, that could definitely send a whole invisible army affecting the souls of humanity. Um, Now, others have said, well, let's read this more literally, and these are sci-fi lab mutations. So, um, you know, stem cell research and other things like trying to grow body parts through DNA manipulation. The, an experiment can go horribly wrong. We can have some sort of creature come out of a lab in Sweden or something, and <laughs> um, it, it takes over. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I don't know, though, if John is, like, is that what John is seeing? Is that what he's describing? That, of course, is the question. Some have seen these locusts as false doctrines, and many have harped on the New Age movement, and that this is the New Age movement sweeping and taking people's minds over. Others say that this is an invading army led by the Antichrist, a Russian army, and that the locusts are trying to describe, in John's best wording possible, modern helicopters. 
What we, however, what we need to remember, and if we're going to read with, po- with prophetic poetry, Joel chapter 2 talks about an invading army of locusts. Joel chapter 2 also talks about blowing the trumpet to warn Israel. Joel chapter 2 also talks about the heavenly beings being darkened. It seems to me that Joel chapter 2 is a heavy influence in how John is describing the things of the future. Now, the book of, book of Joel, is it a literal locust invasion that was being described in that book, or were the locusts symbolic of an army? That is very debated. That's for you to know. You to find out, and no one to know. That's what I was trying to say. The sixth trumpet was blown, and you see these lion horse creatures with the serpent tails, and they're breathing fire, smoke, and sulfur, and they're killing a third of humanity in this manner. Um, Here are some of the various propositions for the future scenario. It's describing a future army with modern warfare. So like the locusts are helicopters, these creatures are tanks. How else do you describe it? The tail is shoot. They got it backwards, of course. But the, 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 the nozzle of the tank is shooting forth fire and smoke and killing a third of humanity. Well, I guess it's the tail of a serpent or something. Um, others, this is a 200 million person army. They get that from the number of 10, twice 10,000 times 10,000. 200 million man army from uh, some sort of an Asian league that rises up against Antichrist. The Orient has always been very detached from what the Western world is doing until much more modern times when the Western world needs China to make our stuff. That's about the only time the Orient and the Western world has gotten together. And so it's very possible that the Antichrist will rule the world except for the Orient. And the Orient will raise up. They can raise a 200 million man army and they will fight against the Antichrist. That's what some people see as happening here. Now, albeit an army of that number would measure um, a, a single column of one by 85 miles. Just to march 200 million people. That is massive. Um, if the number, a third of humankind, if that number is literal, then what we see at this point is literally half the world's population is dead by this point. Because in the fourth seal, we read about a quarter of humanity dying. Now in the sixth trumpet, a third of humanity is dead. Added up, a half of the population is now gone. And then um, those, are your, those are some of your scenarios for the sixth trumpet. Now, remember, in the, in the history, the fall of Israel might have been described this way. These are the Roman armies coming and invading. So it's very likely that we in some way see some sort of a militant army of some sort. Um, all right, let's finish up our passage. Verse 20 of chapter 9. 9.20. As a result of the six trumpets... The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Which I have not talked about much, but following the Egyptian imagery, Pharaoh did the same thing after the plagues. Refused to repent. And here we have humanity, again, history informing the future, we have humanity hardening their hearts. Um, they did not repent the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons 
and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, silly idolaters, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You read such a list, especially the end, you think, yup, that's our world. Um, the idolatry is less, it's just, that's just foreign talk to us. It's old school talk, but we definitely have idolatry. Some worship a dead pig wrapped up into a con- canonical shape, played on Sundays. Others worship. <laughs> Others worship humans who can sing really well or dance really well. Others worship green paper. Um, you know, the, the list goes on. We definitely have idolatry. And idolatry is simply the elevation of the creation over the creator. And our society is so materialistic. We are definitely obsessed with the creation and not the creator. To which, when you have a creation without a creator, it's just called biological mass has evolved. Um, so we're seeing that. And listen, this is, our, this is our warning. These trumpets are our warning because as history informs the future, the future instructs the present. That's the final flip we have to see. So we've seen history informing what could possibly happen in the future, but now we need to realize that as we've seen what could happen in the future, we need that to be the warning to instruct our present. And so the reason John writes this thing to a church, when many people say the church does have nothing to do with any of these scenarios, is because, hey, listen, this is warning you. The future, whether you're here for the future or not, these are warnings to instruct your present living today. And if any of us have anything even close to verses 20 and 21, we need to hear the trumpets. And I don't mean nice little sounding trumpets. Oh, the kingdom's coming. It's so pretty. You need to hear the sound of trumpets with with horses whose nostrils are flaring and they're ready to march on. And you're going to be trampled in that. I'm just using graphic imagery. That's what we need to hear. And so we need to search within and we need to ask ourselves a simple question. Do we worship and celebrate with all of heaven at the Lamb's receiving of the scroll and opening it and announcing that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ? Or are we still fascinated with the kingdoms of this world, with the anti-Christian world? See what I did there? Antichrist's world. And though John says Antichrist has not yet come, the spirit of Antichrist is making ready the way of Antichrist. Are we listening to them prepare the way of Antichrist? Are we excited? Are we compromising? Are we trying to find comfort while we're in pain? Are we willing to patiently endure tribulation in order for the promise of the kingdom? We must, must, must let the future vision of the coming kingdom instruct our present decisions. And so please, don't lose hope, Christian. Don't join the political rabble and loss of hope and... Um, <laughs> but rather model that we belong to another kingdom. And I'm not saying don't care about your nation. Care for it, because Christians should. But this isn't our hope, and nor is it our home. 
Our home is the lamb opening the seventh scroll saying, I'm king, come and join me and we'll have true peace and prosperity forever and ever. Amen.